0: Uh, note to staff. Um, note to staff. Unpaid staff. Um, we won't have communion tonight. We'll do it next week. And because uh, I think you were prepared. To play. Uh, there was a there was yeah miscommunication with staff. So not to worry. Not to worry. Sometimes when I have a bit of time on my hands, I like to go out on YouTube. And I watch a debate. I don't know if you guys do this. You know, you go out and you watch a Christian scholar debate some atheistic scholar. Um, it really, if you've done this, you realize it's more about entertainment <clears throat> than educational value. It's really more show than substance. usually the guy who's the wittiest wins. It, it doesn't really matter if his arguments are sound or if they're fallacious, in the, you know, uh, with respect to the atheist, of course, uh, It's really more about who is the best entertainer, who can get the most laughs. Many times these debates are held on university campuses and the students will chime in. They will comment uh, on various things or ask various questions. Sadly, it's apparent, as you listen to these many of these young people, uh, it's astonishing how utterly indoctrinated many of these folks are. Uh, It seems like they have bought bought into... um, you know, relativism, philosophical relativism. And you can hear it in their questions and you can hear it in their comments. Let me, let me define that for you. Uh, relativism is defined as the doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exists in relation to culture, society, or historical context and are not absolute. Truth is not absolute. That's the part of the definition I want you to hear. And I know you've heard the oft repeated mantra of this kind of muddled thinking that that may be true for you but it's not true for me. I'm sure you've all been exposed to this kind of thing. The the obvious result of this kind of thinking is uh, that absolute truth is denied. Truth is something truth is not something that is fixed and that you bring to the circumstance Truth to a large degree is dictated by the circumstance. This is relativism. Truth is in the eye of the beholder, so to speak. Truth is always situational, circumstantial, cultural, or contextual. Um, In a university philosophy class, you might hear something like this. No one's opinion is superior to anyone else's. There's no hierarchy of truth or values. Anyone's viewpoint is just as valid as anyone else's viewpoint. We all have our own truth. And then the philosophy, the philosophy professor turns around and grades papers. So it's a little bit, uh, little bit of a contradiction there. Seriously, if you think about this for more, I think, than 120 seconds, absolute truth is not only self-evident. I think it's self-evident. Come and tell me after the sermon if I'm wrong. But I think absolute truth is self-evident and it is logically necessary. Philosophically, relativism is contradictory and practically, relativism is anarchy. And what's true of philosophical relativism is also true about religious, and this is where I'm trying to get to, religious relativism. Um, I'm sure you've heard it said many times and as you witness to other people out, as you're out in the world that there are many routes to God. Uh, all world religions are just diff- a different route to God. Uh, I have a great quote on that. and I try to work it in at least once a year. And tonight's your lucky night. It's a quote from Ravi Zacharias. Uh, his book, Jesus Among Other Gods. It's in the bookshelf. Uh, if you haven't read it, it's worth the read. He says it like this regarding religious relativism. Modern pluralistic cultures are beguiled by the cosmetically courteous idea that sincerity of belief is all that counts, and that truth is subject to the beholder. In no other discipline of life can one be so naive to say that all religions are right and that it does not matter whether the claims are objectively true is a catastrophic error in thinking. Do you agree or disagree? He continues, All religions are not the same. All religions do not point to God. All religions do not say that all religions are the same. At the heart of every religion is an uncompromising commitment to a particular way of defining who God is or is not and accordingly defining life's purpose. He continues, Anyone who claims that all religions are the same betrays a shocking ignorance of all religions. Every religion at its core is exclusive. And here's the sentence that I don't want you to ever forget. um, Whether you're talking about philosophy or religion, Ravi Zacharias says, Truth cannot be all-inclusive. Truth by definition excludes, someone tell me, the false. False. Truth excludes the false. We lost a new ager on that one a few years ago. Uh, She hung around for quite some time, actually. She hung around the church. Uh, She came to the Bible studies. Um, But ultimately, she was intolerant of our position on truth. And I told her in love that the Bible was the Word of God. Everything else that spills out of a man's mouth, whether he's a philosopher a shaman, a guru, an imam, a rabbi, a monk, a priest, a bishop, a patriarch, a pope, or even a Protestant preacher, anything that spills out of the mouth of a man, anything and everything other than biblical truth is at best speculation. It's at best speculation. It can be benign speculation or it can be damning speculation. But if we can't verify it here, it's speculation. In the spiritual realm, I know you know this. The absolute truth is the absolute truth, right? Truth is absolute. Truth is absolute. It is not negotiable. Whether you believe it or not, or like it or not, God's truth is not subject to your approval. It's just not subject to your approval. So tonight, as we move into chapter three of Second Peter, the Holy Spirit reminds us that despite the skeptics and the critics and the cynics and the unbelievers and the false teachers and, and the mockers, despite what they say, God will do all that God has said He will do. Truth is not relative with God. it is fixed. It excludes the false. His truth cannot not be true. It cannot not be reality. God's truth is not only absolute, as I thought deeply about this, it's omnipotent. (laughs) God's truth is omnipotent. It is invincible. It will happen. God's truth is synonymous, as I thought more about it, with His purposes. And as we go to Scripture, we read this about the purposes of God and His authority and power to execute His purposes. Daniel 4.35 God does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay His hand. Psalm 135, 5 and 6. You heard me read it earlier. I'll read it again. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth in the seas and in all the deeps. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. In chapter 3, of 2nd Peter the Holy Spirit reminds us that despite what the mockers will say and the mockers have said and the mockers will continue to say Jesus is returning. This is the point of the first few verses of 2nd Peter chapter 3. He is returning and this world as we know it will end. Peter reminds us again that God has judged in the past and God will judge again. It's what we saw two weeks ago. God has judged. He judged the angels. He judged the world Uh, in Noah's day. And He judged Solomon Gomorrah. He made the case, I've judged, I will judge. I've done it, I will do it. Peter continues to strike that tone as he gets into chapter 3. Verses 1 and 2, chapter 3, 2 Peter. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Obviously, this is Peter's second letter. Ergo, the title, Second Peter. Um... This, uh, he, then he repeats almost verbatim what he said in Second Peter 1.13. He says, I am writing to stir you up by reminders. I told you six weeks ago, every preacher gets this verse. This is what preaching is. I remind you what God says. I exhort you to go do what God says. That's my job. Um, it's a very simple job description. I told you that it was the Old Testament refrain of the prophets. If you read through the Old Testament prophets, you can't help but but see the prophets keep saying, remember! Remember your God! Remember the covenant you've made with your God! Remember He brought you out of Egypt! Remember His mighty works! Remember how He's delivered you into the promised land! Remember! This is what preachers do in the church age. Remember your God! Remember what your God has said and go out in the world and do it. This is it's Old Testament prophecy, it's New Testament preaching. So every preacher gets this verse. I'm here to stir you up. You know, you're out in the world all week, and you're being bombarded by worldly messages. You know, the media is trying to saturate your mind pretty much with junk 24 7. But when you come in here, I'm going to stir you up. I'm going to open up God's Word. I'm going to remind you who He is and who you are. You're supposed to know these things, beloved. But sometimes we get dull, don't we? Sometimes we get dull. That's why we need to come in here. And we need to remember these things. And we need to be exhorted to be God's people It's the same in the church age. Well, Isaiah 17.10, you remember we talked about this a few weeks ago. You remember what he said? He said, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. It's the same in you know, much of what the world calls the New Testament church. We've talked about this verse several times in the last few weeks. 2 Timothy through 4 3-4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But they want to have their ears tickled right so they accumulate for themselves teachers who will teach what they want to be taught we've talked a lot about this they turn their ears away from the truth and they turn aside to myth as we've been saying men always prefer a good tickle over the word of God and I love it here that in verse 2 of chapter 3 Peter reiterates what he told us at the end of chapter 1. He says, You have a divine revelation. You have the Word of God. You have a God breathed revelation. Oh, and guess what, beloved? It's not relative. (laughs) It's not relative. It's not subject to the eye of the beholder. It's not circumstantial. It's not situational. It's not contextual. It's the truth. It's God's truth. And it is invincible. It will happen. It will happen. Absolute truth. It's God's sovereign purpose. His divinely fixed reality. It's omnipotent. It's irrepressible. It's irrevocable. It's unstoppable. And as I said earlier, it's invincible. Verse 2 he says, um, Peter is pushing us, again, to, to the Word of God. He says, remember the words spoken beforehand by the Holy Prophets. Obviously, this is a reference to the Old Testament. And then Peter says, and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Again, it's a reference to the New Testament canon, which at this point has not yet been assembled, but it's obvious, an obvious reference to New Testament Scripture the words of the Lord and His apostles. And as I often remind you, this is who we are at ICM. We just do the Word of of God. We don't do anything else. Our worship and all that we do in this church is built around remembering what God has said and then attempting to do what God has said. That's who we are at this church. So I take my cue from, from Peter. I remind you and... I exhort you. This is the job of every true called of God preacher. Nothing more and certainly nothing less. Verses 3 and 4. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it has from the beginning of creation. The mockers are mocking. It's what mockers do, right? You guys know this, right? Mockers mock. There have always been mockers. The Old Testament prophets had to deal with them in the Old Testament. All the way through the New Testament, you see that the writers of the New Testament are dealing with this issue. And if you're a genuine Christian who verbalizes their faith out in the world, you're aware that you're going to be mocked. It just comes with the territory. If you call yourself a Christian, you actually live it out there and you actually speak it out there at some point or another or on a regular basis, you will be mocked. I know that some shrink back because they simply don't want to incur that mock. Beloved, it goes with the territory. You call yourself a Christian, you're going to get mocked in the world. It's just part of the deal. Jesus got mocked. His apostles got mocked. And... You will too if you're out in the world living it. It just comes with the territory. The Bible-believing Christian is often seen as a simpleton, as in- anti-intellectual, but it's my opinion. You tell me if you, if you agree or not that a 110 IQ believing the truth is further along than a 140 IQ believing a lie. Someone tell me if I'm wrong. Do you agree? This is not about IQ, right? We've talked about this. over. An- it's not about IQ. It's about heart. It's not a brain issue. It is a heart issue. It's not that men don't understand the truth. I bet you could finish that sentence because I've said it a few times lately. It's not that men don't understand what God's saying. It's that men don't like what God is saying. It's never an intellectual issue. It's always a moral issue. What do we learn in Romans chapter 1? What do men do? What does natural man do with the truth? He seeks it. He wants it. He can't find it. He's searching everywhere for the truth. Right? He wants the truth. If someone would just tell me the truth. Right? That's natural man. Right? No. What does the text say? Natural man's pushing that truth down. He knows the truth. It's in here. God put it in here. It's written on his heart. It's written on his conscience. He knows it. Romans 1 tells us that natural man is pushing it down. Suppressing that truth. It's not an intellectual issue, beloved. It is a moral issue. It's why so many, in these last days, embrace naturalistic, atheistic, macro-Darwinian cosmology. It's not because the data are intelligently compelling. It's not about you know the data is anything but compelling. But because the fairy tale is morally agreeable. No God, no accountability, no restraints on my sin. So men don't misunderstand the truth. As I said, they they suppress and hold down the truth. Men don't misinterpret the truth. They exchange it for a lie. Romans chapter one verse twenty-five. Men don't misconstrue the truth. They hate it and they reject it. Romans chapter one, twenty eight and twenty nine. There in verses 3 and 4, um, what are they mocking? What are they mocking? We've already, I think we've already mentioned it. They're mocking the second coming of Christ. The, the mockers and the false teachers, they deny the second coming. If you were with us last month or so, you know that Peter has already spoken to the issue about Jesus' second coming. Do you remember what he said? He said, I was there, I saw it. Now what's he talking about? Actually, what Peter's saying, I, I, Peter says, I got a foretaste of it. When did Peter get a foretaste of the coming glory of Jesus? Anybody remember? Transfiguration. At the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John saw it. They felt it. They heard it. They tasted it in a sense. Peter says, I've seen it. I've seen His glory. He is coming back. And it's going to be awesome. This is what Peter is saying. I have seen it. I have had a foretaste of the glory of Jesus Christ as He returns. Peter is saying, His return, it is not a relative truth. It is a God truth. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It is God's purpose. Men can mock all they want. God's coming back. Jesus Christ is coming back. Mock if you want. He's coming back. Mock if you want. Jesus Christ is my God. Mock if you want. But I'm going to attempt to live by His words. I won't go with you there. I won't do that thing. Jesus Christ is my Lord. He's my Savior. Mock if you want. And He's coming back for me. And He brings... His infinite joy in His right hand. Beloved, you need to be ready for the mocking. You know, if you're not ready for the mocking, uh, you're going to get out there and you're going to be intimidated. You've got to know. It's just like trials. You're supposed to know the trial's going to come. When the, Christian, the biblically literate Christian knows the trial's going to come. It's going to come. We know it's coming. God has told us it will come. It's necessary for you. Why is the trial necessary? Someone tell me. We saw it in 1 Peter that your faith may be proven. We know the trial's going to come. We also know the mocking's going to come. Are you ready? Are you ready to stand in the world and just give a witness, right? Just, Just give that faithful witness. The mocking will come. Jesus coming back, full of gravity and gladness, full of judgment and joy. He comes back, In judgment for all those who have rejected Him, He comes back to bring God-sized joy to those who have received Him by faith. Malachi 4, 1 and 2 talks about it. Let me just read it to you quickly. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evil doer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze. But for you who fear My name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth, I love this last phrase, and skip about like calves from the stall. And of course, Jesus talked about it in Matthew 25. Jesus says, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. He's going to make the division when He comes. The believer and the unbeliever. It's not that these false teachers and these mockers don't know what the Bible say. They know what the Bible says. They know the Bible is clear that that Jesus is coming back. They simply deny it. They know what Jesus said. He said He's coming back. They just don't believe it. Does it sound familiar? It's what we've been talking about these last several weeks weeks, it's like so many teachers in these last days who just simply deny or explain away the clear meaning of the Bible. If you've been around church very long, if you've done much reading, you understand that this is epidemic in what is called the modern church. For example, two weeks ago as we talked about eternal damnation, we know that men try to explain it away. Men don't like it. It's not that God's not clear. It's that men don't like what God's saying. And they try to explain that away. The other thing we talked about a couple of weeks ago as we talked about Solomon and Gomorrah, God's view of homosexuality. Well, modern culture doesn't like it. So they try to, they try to extract it from the, from the text. Or they try to reinterpret it. Same thing was happening in the first century with the second coming of Jesus. They knew what God said. They just didn't like it. So they were mocking it and ignoring it. Did you notice in verse 3, someone tell me what the motivation, someone tell me from the text what their motivation was for denying God's Word. Is this really about the integrity and reliability of the Bible? Or is it about something else? What does the text say? Anybody want to tell me? What's this about? It's about following their lust. That's what it's about. Anytime a man is denying the Word of God, you can mark it down. He has an agenda. He has some kind of agenda. When he's trying to explain away the Word of God, he has an agenda. And Peter's telling us here that in this case, these false teachers are following after their own lust. It's not about truth. You know, when I listen to these these debates, you ultimately can see clearly if you have the eyes to see it. This is not about truth. This is about my agenda, right? This is about what I want to believe. I want to believe there's no God because it gives me moral license. It's not about truth. And this is what Peter's saying here. This, is not, this argument's not about truth. It's about the lusts of the flesh. Their eschatology is not built around careful exegesis. It's built around their uninhibited lusts. We've seen this a lot as we've talked about false teachers through chapter 2 of Second Peter. Let me reread verse 4. Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continue just as it was from the beginning of... So what's their argument here, doubting the second coming? What's their argument? Jesus has never come, so He's never going to come. I mean, that's that's how complicated their argument is. They're saying Jesus will not return because He hasn't returned. Right? All continues just as it has always been. While this is not a logically satisfying argument, it is offered up in the religious realm. It is also offered up in... The scientific realm, uh, I was thinking about the, uh, uh, one of the, the theories that undergirds much of evolutionary thought, uniformitarianism. Simply saying that time and nature are closed, immutable, fixed systems, that there is no outside or supernatural influence in the natural order. Well, if we're Christians, if we're Bible-believing Christians, we know that that is false. God steps into the natural order anytime He wants to, right? He's not bound by the laws He set in place. Modern naturalists make the same mistake that these first century mockers make. For all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. The sun comes up. The sun goes down. The seasons come. The seasons go. The tides rise. The tides fall. It has always been this way. It will always be this way. Wrong! God says, I'm coming back! And I'm going to destroy this world. You know, beloved, we're in... We're in the heaven and earth 2.0. Heaven and earth 1.0 is gone. It went away with the flood. And I won't talk about it. I, can't, I don't have time to go into all the differences of the atmosphere that have happened since, the, since that flood. We're in, we're in earth 2.0. Jesus is bringing back earth 3.0. The new heavens and the new earth. We'll talk a lot about that next week as we move on in the chapter... There's this assertion that natural law is not only constant and unchanging, it is ultimately absolute and supreme. As Bible-believing Christians, we understand that this is false. Verses 5 and 6, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the Word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at this time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Water. I love how the King James translates this, the Old King James. It says, They are willfully ignorant, right? <laughs> Willful ignorance. This is unregenerate man. Willful ignorance. It doesn't simply escape their notice. They are willfully ignorant. Of course, implied here one, that the cosmos is not eternal, it was formed by God, it's not eternal. I don't think there's any reputable—I could be wrong—and maybe Chris could tell me—I don't think there are any reputable cosmologists who still believe that the the cosmos is eternal, are there? Not that I know. Okay. What do are, what are, what are cosmologists? These are guys that, that think deeply about origins in the universe. What do they what do they hold to now? What's the primary theory now? Big Bang. Big Bang singularity, right? But here's the cool question. If there was a beginning, and almost every scientist today believes there was, how did it begin? Do you know, do you know beloved, you're holding the cards here? <laughs> do, you know, do you know in this argument you're holding the cards? Do you, do you know it? Because you know what the atheistic cosmologist, you know what he must postulate? It just happened. It happened. Nobody plus nothing equals everything. I, it doesn't work for me. I'm sorry. It doesn't work for me. They, and they accuse us of believing in fairy tales. I won't pursue that tonight, although I'd like to. Um, I won't pursue it. But I, let me just say this. I want to make a parenthetical comment. Um, Christians should not accommodate unproven and increasingly discredited theories about origins We do not have to and we should not import macro-Darwinian evolutionary theory into Genesis chapters 1 and 2 to maintain our intellectual integrity. I think the opposite is true. To maintain our intellectual integrity, we must stand up and say, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. Close parentheses on that. I love how the Holy Spirit says it in Hebrews 11.3, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. This is our worldview, our base worldview. God is a creator. God has created the world. God has created me. And the natural laws are subject to him. This is our worldview. The cosmos is not the inevitable result of the outworking of natural laws, it is the obvious result of an awesome. We, we've talked about this in Romans 1 many times. His invisible attributes and divine nature is clearly seen in the created order. It's clearly seen. Beloved, this is not about intellect. It's about morality. Why do they deny the truth that Jesus is coming back? Just the same reason they deny every other truth. Because of their lust. because of their lusts as the Holy Spirit has told us here in the Word of God. If we believe our Bibles, the world not only had a supernatural beginning, oh, guess what? Every nanosecond that the world exists, it involves supernatural uh, attention. What what does the the Scripture tell us? Hebrews 1.3 God is upholding... Uh, all things by the Word of His power. God's holding it all together consciously. God is holding it together. So there was a supernatural beginning and every second that the cosmos exists in its current state, it's supernatural. God's holding it together by the Word of His power. Verse 6, as indicated here, and as we talked about two weeks ago, God has supernaturally invaded world history before. He did it in Noah's day and He judged the world for its rebellion and wickedness. And He will do it again. God will invade history again. Verse 7, "...but the present heavens and earth by His Word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction." Of ungodly men. The first time God judged the world by water. The next time His Word tells us that He will judge it by fire. I want to remind you this is not relative truth, this is the purpose of God. Jesus is coming back and He brings judgment. And He brings glorification of His people. The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire simply that they are kept or set aside. Uh, they are destined for destruction in accordance with the Word of God as we've been seeing since, we got, since we've gotten into the second chapter of 2 Peter. As I've been saying to you, God is coming, right? You know, beloved, we're supposed to we're supposed to realize that Jesus is coming, and we're supposed to be looking forward to the coming of Jesus, and we're supposed to be living like we believe Jesus is coming. Our life is supposed to look like we believe Jesus is coming, and that He could split the sky today. But God is coming. It's what we've been seeing in the last chapter. And as we begin this chapter, God is coming. Wrath is coming. Judgment is coming. Do you love your friends and your family and your neighbors and your your fellow students and co-workers? Will you tell them that Jesus is coming? Will you tell them? Will you tell them Jesus is coming and He brings His judgment? For all those who... Or rebellion against him? Will you will you love the people in the world? Will you love them enough to tell them? That's your job. <laughs> you know, I tell you, when you that's your job. That's why you're still on the planet. Your principal job, I know we have, you know, subordinate responsibilities, but your principal job as a disciple of Jesus, is to talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk to your neighbors, talk to your fellow students. Jesus is coming. And the question is for everyone you tell. The question is, friend, will you meet Him as judge or will you meet Him as Savior? Because there's no middle place. There's no little, you know, warm and fuzzy religious place that you can stand in the middle. There's no such place. You either meet Him as judge or you meet Him as Savior. We need to be talking, beloved. You need to be speaking in the world. This is who we are, right? Oh, guess what? Yes, you'll be mocked. You're supposed to be ready. Get prayed up. Read your Bible. You know, call me. I'll pray for you. Say, Jim, i got a tough one today. Call me. I'll be praying for you, man. You're going to get mocked. So what? So what? A soul might be taken out of hell and into eternal life through Your Word. The Lord may use you like that. I want to say it again. God will invade history with His righteous judgment. He has done it and He will do it. This is the Word of God. I love how John Piper, how he comments on these verses and I'm about done. Listen to this quote. I want you to listen to this. John Piper, you know, well-known preacher in the States. These false teachers ignore that the world was made and its order hangs on God's Word. I love that. Natural events are no more locked into one pattern than God is. If God is free to speak a new word, then nature is free to change. Man must guard against, the, I love this, pseudoscientific notion that nature is a law unto itself. It is not. And I love this last sentence. Listen to this. The laws of nature are the tireless whisperings of the Almighty, and if He should choose to raise His voice, the cataclysm will come. God is quietly holding the cosmos together. It's just what He does. He's awesome. His quiet whisperings. Don't you love it? His quiet whisperings. But if He should choose to raise His voice, the cataclysm will... Will come, So, beloved, I want, you to, I want you to mark it down. We come in here and we talk about real things, not superficial, stupid, unsound, false speculation. We talk about real things in here. We talk about what God says, and we talk about what that means in our lives and how we should live it out. The truth that we talk about, it's not relative, it's not situational, it's not circumstantial, it's not cultural, and it's not contextual. It is the Word of the Creator God. And none can stay His hand. He will accomplish all His good pleasure. Beloved, you can mark it down. The present heavens and earth, He tells us they're reserved for fire. Jesus is coming. He brings judgment and He brings joy. He brings judgment to those who are rebellion against Him, and He brings infinite and eternal joy to those who have placed their faith in Him. Jesus is coming! Are you talking about it? When was the last time you told someone, Jesus is coming? I mean, that's a, that'll start a conversation or end one. <laughs> hey man, Jesus is coming. And Jesus said, this world is reserved for fire. Do you know Him? Will you meet Him as judge or will you meet Him as Savior? So believer, rejoice and be glad. Jesus is coming and He's bringing His infinite joy to you. Unbeliever, to you I say mock no more. Repent and believe for Jesus is coming with His righteous eternal judgment. If you don't know Christ tonight, I invite you to come to Him. And if you don't understand what that means, you come talk to me. I'll be happy to talk to you. Drop me an email. Call me if you don't understand what it means to come to Jesus. And I just want to leave you with a Scripture that we closed with two weeks ago. One reason I want to leave it with you is because it's a perfect closing to the sermon, but it's also a perfect prelude to next week, next week's sermon. You'll remember it. I shared it with you two weeks ago. Romans 2, 4, and 5. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This is the sentence I want to close with. Biblical truth is not relative. Biblical truth is not relative. It is the settled, sure, fixed, absolute, unalterable truth and purpose of a sovereign, omnipotent Creator God. His name is Jesus Christ, beloved, and He's coming. He's coming. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank You for Your Word, as always. I thank You how it anchors us. We get bombarded in the world by a lot of goofy things, things that don't matter at all. But when we open Your Word, It's just truth. It's beautiful truth. As we study the Scriptures, we find that Your Word is full of gravity and gladness. Judgment and joy. It's it's there. It's all there. And You've called us to Yourself. The Holy Spirit has come within us, Lord. We know why we're here preeminently, we know why You've left us on the planet, to be Your disciples. So Lord, I pray that we would take that to heart. We would be Your disciple in our family, in our work, at our school, obviously in the church, and in the world at large. We would be speaking Your Word. We would be giving a witness. We would be telling our friends and family that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. This is not relative. He's coming back. He's, he's, he's done it. He will do it. He steps into time whenever it pleases Him. Lord, I pray. I pray that we would hold up a great God and a Savior. That we would hold up a Savior for the world to see. Thank You for this text, Lord. Thank You for how You have exhorted us and reminded us of exactly what You've called us here to do to be Your people. So we rejoice and give thanks and pray all this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.